All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a fantastic Friday morning show for you today, and we jump right in with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart and his new affordable housing plan. It's called Making Home, and home here stands for Home Options for Middle-Income Earners. The idea, Densify, build up to six new homes on a single-family lot. And here to talk about it now is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Nice to talk to you, Mike. Okay, so the idea here is to build up to six homes on an existing single-home lot, right? So we're talking neighborhoods currently zoned single-family, which is like a lot of Vancouver, typically one detached house on one lot. So how would this work? You want to build up to six homes on one of those lots. Yeah, we had uh, Dan and Sarah come to my press conference the other day, and they own one of these homes in South Vancouver. Uh, they barely scraped together. They're a young family with two kids. They barely scraped together the money to get this, and it needs uh, new plumbing, electricity, you know, electrical wiring, new roof, and they can't do it right now, so their only option is to sell it and move out of the city. Uh, making home would allow them to, to tear it down and build up the six units, like you say. Uh, they can keep one or two. They can sell the other four. Uh, to other new families to help uh, fund the uh, the new build. But also uh, what's really good for the city is that there's a lot of land lift with this. The value of the property will go up, and the city has uh, tools like we do on larger strata buildings to capture some of this money and to reinvest it into affordable housing for folks that are you know living without homes, homeless folks, right. uh, into climate action plan, uh, you know, infrastructure investments, sewers, all that stuff. So... Uh, Tom Davidoff, uh, UBC prof, totally, you know, helped us put this together. It backs it. We think it's a winner. Okay, where would these new homes be built? Like, what parts of the city? Well, there's certain parts of the city that can't be built because, like, downtown, there's <laughs> there's none of those lots left. However, the vast majority of the rest of the city, uh, there's about 60,000 single-family lots uh, around the city. So uh, there would be a process for application. And... That's what I really like about this is it's not top-down, it's bottom-up. You, the property owner, get to decide what you want to do with your property. We'd have a cap on the number that you would do every year, but uh, yeah. once this passes council, we could see this, uh, you know, you could see these popping up in neighborhoods all over the city. Okay, so would that include like the ritziest neighborhoods, like Shaughnessy, Point Grey, be allowed there too? It could do for sure. Um, you know, again, it's a property, you know, property owner driven, uh, uh, you know, uh, project. And so uh, the thing, the key is, though, uh, we also have um, something called a de- development cost expectation, which limits speculation. So you won't have, you know, big developers going out and buying up 100 of these and, and flipping them to uh, really drive up the value. So we think, again, by limiting speculation, and then by capturing some of the value uh, to benefit the entire city, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it, it's going to work. Okay, what if the neighbors put up a fight? Like, we see this all the time, especially in single-family neighborhoods. You try to densify, people fight like hell against that, and they say, oh, you're changing the character of the neighborhood. So, like, what if the neighbors object? I mean, would there, have to, would there be a rezoning process? Would there be public hearings on these projects? Yeah, so if you go to makinghome.ca, you'll see uh, sketches of what these buildings look like, and you'll literally walk by them, and you wouldn't notice uh, any difference from, say, uh, a large uh, heritage home here in the city. So they're, you know, the design, uh, some of the architects that have worked with us on this, uh, you know, the design is very similar to what's in neighborhoods. You might have to dig a little deeper, and you might have to build slightly higher, but they won't be out of character, which is great. 
And also, uh, the way we uh, do this is that you, you know, you don't have to go through rezonings at city council. It can be done a lot faster. Right. Uh, and but because it's from the bottom up, because it's the property owner controlling their own property, um, you know, there's not as much uh, interaction with uh, with the city council. Okay, so if you get the NIMBY backlash thing, we don't want this in our neighborhood, they really wouldn't have any avenue to fight it. Right? Well, I don't know what NIMBY backlash you're going to get because a lot of the land lift, you know, what the city captures will be reinvested into the local neighborhood. So it can spruce up your park, it could do that sewer upgrade that everybody needs. Like, So it is uh, the value that's captured by the city would be reinvested, some of it at least, right. locally. Uh, and that should make folks happy in the neighborhood because it's those single-family neighborhoods that actually haven't had a lot of investment uh, because, you know, they don't have a lot of uh, revenue to the city from like we right. have when we build larger buildings. Right, so that land lift you're talking about is like yep. this would generate revenue for the city because if I guess if you have six homeowners paying property taxes on one city lot instead of one homeowner, the city would collect more money in overall property taxes, right? Well, but it's not just property taxes because, uh, you know, say a, a million-dollar lot, well, there's not many of those left, say a $2 million lot with a single-family home on it, the value may go up to, say, 3 or $4 million with the six units on it which will make them cheaper than the single home, but we will capture at the city some of that lift, just like we do when we build condos downtown. These are smaller, you know, you can really think of them as very small condo buildings. Yeah, okay, so the price of a detached home in the city right now is like what, about $1.8 million or something? Is that where we're yeah, at right now? So much. how yeah. much would one of these cost? If you put six units of housing on one lot, how much would one, one home cost? Well, the answer I can tell you right now is a lot less. However, uh, you know, because the form will be determined by the architects, you know, uh, some will make them extremely fancy places, which I can totally understand, but others will make very simple, simply designed places that would be a lot cheaper, but then it's up to the owner to decide uh, what's, what's best for their property in their neighborhood. So again, it's not imposed by the city, it's, uh, it's driven from the ground up. Okay, what about um, municipal infrastructure that would have to be there to support more people living on a single lot so i you know i'm already hearing from critics saying well what about the water services sewer services what about parking if you have a ton more people living in one single lot isn't there going to be more parking demands on the street how do you deal with all those issues yeah well first of all uh, we have about sixty thousand of these lots in the city and and this uh, proposal calls for only two thousand of them to be entered in this project so what we've, uh, into this program so yeah. to begin with at least and this so this would be really Gradual, uh, but I think once it goes through, these buildings could be built fairly quickly. On the infrastructure, again, we're capturing some of this land lift, uh, which would go right into that, uh, you know, to upgrading sewer and water, uh, uh, you know, roads and uh, parks, all those local things that are needed. So it's it should be a self-sustaining uh, exercise. Okay, how do you get this thing done? Because this is an idea that you have brought to council before. I mean, this is the second time you've pushed a plan like this, and a similar plan was voted down by city council last year, and I know you were very disappointed about that. Why would this be any different? Well, first of all, I listen to councillors. I guess there's two things. Last time, the way I brought it in was a bit of abrupt, abruptly done, and there wasn't a lot of time for them to consider that. So I, I, I kind of get this. This time, I've uh, given months for them to look at this. Uh, so I introduced it the other day, and uh, we'll be bringing it to council in January. So there's lots of time for the public and councillors to look at it. 
Also, I've built in some of the concerns that I heard last time, last year. So, for example, exactly what you mentioned about local infrastructure, we think we fixed that. Uh, the other thing about limiting speculation, I think I fixed that. So I think it's a much, much better proposal, uh, and hopefully they'll support it. When will it go in front of City Council? I'm aiming for January. Uh, first meeting there is the 25th of January. Okay. What you, you described this as a middle-income plan. This is the missing middle. This is building homes yep. that middle-income earners can afford. So what kind of demographics are we talking about here? Like a middle-income earner, how do you define that? What kind of income are we talking about there? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, depend, we're going to work out the costs and everything as we go through. Like, that's what staff will do once, city, uh, once the council passes this. But I can see these units, uh, remember they're ground oriented, right? You'll, you can walk out your door and walk to your school or walk to your corner store, uh, would be around the same price as a, or less, a little less than a condo that you'd buy downtown. So you can get a condo, uh, you know, between six and $800,000, I would say to be in that range. But again, it will, there's a lot of factors to consider and that will come out if council uh, passes this. Right. And you mentioned it would be driven by, the existing homeowner so an existing homeowner would apply for one of these would that homeowner then be required to continue living in one of the the new units that's built on the property okay no so you could also have small builders uh do this which is great for the economy it would create lots of small jobs so you can see like say dan and sarah get a job in calgary uh they sell it to a small builder the builder uh you know takes this program up build six units he could uh, they could sell it all uh, however, we capture at the city, again, there's not there's room for a small amount of profit by the builder, but it would most of it would be captured by the city. So that's the, that's a huge advantage. And again, they can't go out and buy a hundred of them and flip these properties because we have this yeah. other uh, mechanism to limit that. Okay, we'll see how this one works out for you. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about religions and the pandemic, especially the push for religious exemptions to the vaccine mandate. So what if you belong to a church that forbids vaccination? There are not a lot of them. Should those people get an exemption from the vaccine rules? What about the role of the religious right in the vaccine debate? I mean, we see some evangelical preachers, for example, preaching against the vaccine. Let's discuss now with my guest, Reverend Michael Corrin. Michael is a minister in the Anglican Church of Canada. He is the author of 17 books, an award-winning columnist and broadcaster. Uh, his latest book is a big hit. The Rebel Christ. It is a bestseller on Amazon right now. I was just checking that out, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure. But go to Indigo, because Amazon have sold out. <laughs> oh, are they? Okay. Okay, Indigo. For about a week, yeah. Okay, well, congratulations on the book. I really want to talk to you about the book, because I think it's a fascinating topic. But let me first ask you about the, some of the headlines that are in the news right now, especially when it comes to the pandemic and the sort of role of religions here. So what? It, so for a vaccine, uh, for people who claim a, a, a religious belief that would exempt them from the vaccine, is that like is that rooted in any kind of Christian orthodoxy or scripture? To your knowledge, that it, you know you shouldn't take a vaccine. Nope. In fact, it's contrary to Christian teaching. And I know this might sound harsh, but I have absolutely no time and no sympathy for people who try and abuse religion to justify their prejudice. As a priest, I spend too much time in hospitals, in senior centers, with people who've had COVID, 
people, uh, family members who died of COVID. The pain and suffering is tangible out there. The Christian duty is to protect others, to live in community, particularly care for the vulnerable, the aged, uh, those who can't really cope on their own. COVID is a killer. If you care about others, if you believe in the teachings of Jesus, which are communal, uh, they're loving, they're caring, they're empathetic, then you should be vaccinated. There is nothing in an intelligent reading of Scripture that would prohibit vaccination. Right. And when I take a look at some of the rules of the major Christian denominations, whether it's Catholicism or or the major Protestant churches, um, even go down to the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, it, it seems like very few of them have got any kind of prohibition on vaccinations. But there's a small, very small number of exceptions there, right? Notably, the the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, of which there are some adherents here in British Columbia. So should they well, should they get a vaccine uh, exemption? No, they shouldn't. I mean, the Reformed Church is quite diverse. There are many denominations within it: Christian Reform, Dutch Reform, Netherlands Reform, and so on. But I mean, most Reformed churches would not have an objection. No. I mean, this is getting it all backwards. What's happening is these are people who are opposed to vaccination, and so they try and find a religious coating to justify uh, their their opposition. And that simply won't do. I mean, there can be a literal fundamentalist uh, reading of Scripture, but if you do that, uh, you better not eat bacon. I mean, you you better be willing to to sell your daughter into slavery. I mean, it just becomes bizarre. No, no, God loves knowledge and truth. Science is knowledge and truth. The vaccinations prevent people from being sick. They prevent people from dying. We should be vaccinated. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you oppose that, okay, oppose it. I disagree with you, but please stop trying to abuse religious faith to justify it. Right. Despite that, though, that we continue to see a lot of people, especially in the United States on this debate, I mean, but in Canada, too, people who will point to their religious faith or their religious beliefs as reason why they, they don't want to get the, the vaccine. And there are some evangelical TV preachers in the United States who say, like, the vaccine is the number of the beast and all kinds of stuff like that. So where does that come from? <laughs> Well, yeah, they do, and they also have other theories. Uh, but they're, they're bizarre, and they're based on an eschatology, an end times, the world's going to win, there'll be this huge end times war, and, and so on. And no, it, it's, a, with all due respect, a very childlike reading of the book of Revelation. Um, there are various theories as to what it means, but it's nothing to do with this. It's, vaccinations are, I mean, they've been around for a very long time. There was always some opposition from fundamentalist Christians and always embraced by mainstream Christians. So now this American Christianity on the right is in crisis. And one of the manifestations is opposition to vaccination. They yeah. oppose all sorts of things that are good and positive and progressive. Right. Well, let's talk about that because this is central to your book, The Rebel Christ. It's about Christianity in crisis. And you believe that Christianity has become misunderstood and misinterpreted widely in some some churches and faiths. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you're talking mainly about the religious right in the United States and evangelical Christianity, or yes, but I think the right-wing fringe of the Catholic Church has become part of this. Uh, ironically, in reaction to Pope Francis, who on many issues is quite progressive, and so they're very angry with him, and they've become more and more right-wing, and they're also part of the anti-vaccination lobby. And I think if you ask a lot of people listening now, what is your view of Christianity? 
it may be what I think it is, which is organized kindness and goodness built around belief in, in, in the Prince of Peace, Jesus. But I think many people would say, well, it's angry, it's anti-abortion, it's anti-gay, it, it's very right-wing, it's Donald Trump. And that is so far from the Son of God who 2,000 years ago came into human form as the son of a working-class man in occupied Judea and lived a, a communalistic, a socialistic lifestyle and, and, and lived with the poor and the marginalized and criticized the wealthy and the powerful. So, yes, I think we've distorted, or some people have distorted Christianity, and it damages society, but also it damages terribly the reputation of Christianity. What do you think about the, uh, the, the Christian right movement, and how do you trace that, or when did it start? Because I remember when I was younger, and I grew up in a, a religious home, and you know, I, I would describe my parents as kind of left wing, I guess. And if mm. you think about sort of a uh, the religious left in the past, like I think about people like Martin Luther King or or Tommy Douglas, the founder of Medicare in Canada, who was a, a Baptist minister. Maybe some people may not know that. When did yeah. it start? When did the religious sort of Christian mainstream Christianity? or at least uh, evangelical Christianity starts to sort of turn turn right? It's a very good question. I mean, there's always been an issue once church and state began to mingle, and that goes back to the 4th century. Uh, but I think this particular phenomenon we can trace to the 1960s, when in the United States there was a reaction to the so-called permissive or progressive society, which was very liberating for most people, and it wasn't a caricature that some claim, but it frightened and intimidated some, and so the evangelical church embraced something more conservative. And they were then joined by the, the right wing of the Catholic church in the early 70s when abortion was, was legalized and liberalized. And so it was a reaction to, to progress, really. And what I think is, is so ironic about this is I believe we have a more Christian society now than ever before in that we have a welfare state, socialized medicine. We care for the weakest, the poorest, those who can't fend for themselves. That's a, very, that's a very Christian thing to do. But that's opposed by, by people who think it's all state invent, intervention and, right. and, and criminal. So you, you're quite right. I mean, the, the left in Canada, the left in Europe, in Britain, the Labour Party was always said to owe more to Methodism than to Marxism. That wonderful right. liberal reformist view of Christianity, yeah, that changed drastically, I would say, in the, in the early to mid-1960s. My guest is Reverend Michael Corn. He's an Anglican church minister in Canada. His new book is The Rebel Christ, and it's a bestseller right now on uh, Indigo. Uh, Michael, why did you call it The Rebel Christ? Jesus Christ is a, is a rebel. He's a revolutionary in your mind? Yeah. I mean, he's, look, I, I'm a I'm Christian priest. I believe he's the son of God. I believe in the creed. I, I, I believe that, that this is something that is beyond us. It's a supernatural. But it's, it's no coincidence that when God became one of us, to quote the song, <laughs> when God became one of us, hmm. he chose to take that, that wonderful leap of empathy to become human, to show community, not as an aristocrat or a, or a warlord or a monarch, but as the son of a carpenter living under occupation. And if you look at his lifestyle, how did he live? Who did he live with? He didn't own property, didn't own anything really. What did he preach? The Beatitudes. This is all revolutionary. I, I don't mean in, a, in a, a party political sense. I reject that. But the, the, the transformation of the self and the transformation of society. If you 
read the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus preach and teach? What did he say to the wealthy? What did he say to the rich man? Sell everything, give it to the poor. I'm not going to conclude from that that he was a socialist, but I don't think you can conclude from that that he was a venture capitalist or a billionaire investor. I mean, quite clearly, he sides with the underdog. He sides with those who are trying to change society. He's eventually no. arrested, abused, and murdered by the authorities, by the state, Jewish and Roman, when he gets to Jerusalem. Yes, he was a radical. He was a revolutionary. So he was a, he was a socialist, you're saying? Jesus was a socialist? I'm, I wouldn't use that term. I think he, he lived a communalistic life. He lived in community. He rejected wealth and material. I mean, I'm not going to give him modern terms. I think that, that's too reductive. But um, he certainly wasn't a conservative. Yeah. Now, the, the purpose of your book is, you know, it's not an evangelical book where you're trying to convince people to believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God and, and come, you're right. I, like, I see it more as a an explanation of where the the church has gone and lost the the true meaning or message of Jesus. Is that what is that the way you would describe it? Thanks for saying that. Yes. I mean, I, I, if people come to me and they want to be Christian, lovely. I welcome that. But I'm not going out there to convert people. I'm trying right. to explain to people, Christian and non-Christian, what Jesus actually said, what the faith really teaches. And I'm trying to, it's reactive in a way because I'm responding to those people who I think have distorted Christianity. All right, welcome back to the show. Continuing my conversation now with Reverend Michael Corrin. Michael is an Anglican church priest. His new book is The Rebel Christ, uh, getting great reviews, bestseller on Amazon and Indigo right now. Uh, Michael, I think the last time I talked to you on the radio, um, I think you were getting ready to leave the Catholic Church, right? Did you leave the Catholic Church and go over to the Anglicans? Is that what happened? That was about eight years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why did you do that? Why did you? Why does the, the Anglican Church of Canada more align to your, your beliefs? It was very personal. I mean, I went through a, quite a change of life. I always I was Christian, but I uh, had a bit of a spiritual transformation, maybe a bit of a spiritual breakdown, I think. It's very painful, very difficult. And um, you know, if you would have interviewed me nine years ago, it would have been a, a, I had very different views on many issues, not all, but on some. And in that transformation, I, I, I thought it was only just to leave the Catholic Church, not to attack the Catholic Church, but to be fair to it, because I, I no longer held to its beliefs. And I wondered uh, a little, but I, I moved over to Anglicanism. I'm, I'm still Catholic in my theology, but um, then after a few years, um, I decided I would try seminary. And all these years later, at the ripe old age of 62, I'm now an Anglican priest. <laughs> yes, yes. And I know you were, just, you were just recently ordained, right? Yeah, I was ordained a deacon two years ago. Yeah. And I was priested about a month ago. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. I think that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you about um, some of the uh, the issues that divide Christians. Uh, let's talk about homosexuality, same-sex marriage, gender identity. When you when you switched over to the Anglican Church, is that more are the are the beliefs and teachings of the Anglican Church more in line or your thoughts on those issues? Well, actually, it was the issue of equal marriage and, and full gay equality that was the, the wedge issue for me. I could, I could no longer hold to it. And that's, uh, although there are many Catholics who would agree with me, Catholic teaching is still, well, I would say it was quite homophobic. And I couldn't remain in, in, in the church with that teaching. No, I, I believe it's not who you love, it's that you love that matters. And I, I've seen the love and commitment of people of the same gender in, in wonderful marriages, and I completely support those. I think it's God-affirming. 
And um, uh, I, I mean, many churches have moved to this position. Others haven't. Yeah. Evangelical churches aren't. The Catholic Church hasn't. I don't think it will, not in my lifetime. But um, no, I, Scripture has very little to say about this issue. But what Je- and Jesus never mentions it. But what he does talk about consistently is love and understanding and inclusion. Right, and you anticipated my question on that because I know this is you. You write about this in your book, and so when people talk about well, same-sex marriage, I guess is is a sin, or homosexuality is a sin. Like if you go back to the New Testament, what did what did Jesus say about that stuff? Well, he doesn't say anything about it at all, um, and in fact, he's far more condemning of those who judge. The only St. Paul, which is the earliest part of the New Testament, does mention it two or three times. But it's not relevant to equal marriage. It's really about straight men using teenage boys for sex in pagan initiation ceremonies. And the new, all of Scripture, this is, this is an ancient text. It has to be written with understanding. It's not divine dictation. And, and there's a meaning to what is being said. And the Old Testament, again, the, uh, Sodom is not about that issue. And uh, the other references, this is a, about a tribal people uh, talking about procreation, there are all sorts of prohibitions that you'd never dream of applying today. And then there is one passage in the New Testament, in the Gospels, uh, that is possibly relevant to this, and that's when Jesus uh, meets a centurion. The centurion says, I love my slave, my servant, very much. He's ill. If you say the word, he's healed. And the Greek there is not platonic. It's something much more intimate and romantic. And that may well be a man talking about a, a loving same-sex relationship. We don't know. But it's possible. We do know that Jesus said nothing critical or negative about an issue that was a very well-known issue at the time. Right. So it's no good saying, well, he, he just he didn't know about it. Of course he did. And there are many things he criticizes. Uh, selfishness, wealth, power, persecution, treating others badly, lack of forgiveness, war, aggression. All that he condemns, but he doesn't condemn the love of two people of the same gender. Michael, it's a fascinating conversation. Congratulations on all your success with the book. And, um, you know, it's, it's getting great reviews, and it, you're selling a lot of copies here. It's sold out on Amazon. You can get it on Indigo, though, right? Yeah, as far as I know, yes, it's still there on Indigo. Okay, okay. okay. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, all right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about contact sports like football now and the concussion risk for players, especially for kids and young people who play these sports. And we have learned a lot about this over the years, the concussion risk, the repeated head trauma. It's the focus of the annual CTE conference that's going on today in Boston, where former NFL player Jonathan Martin is a keynote speaker, and he's being honored there. This is a guy who played many seasons in the NFL. He suffered a lot of head injuries and concussions. And he struggled with health health issues and even suicide attempts since the end of his career. We've heard a lot of similar stories from former football players. CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a progressive and, and sometimes fatal brain disease. Uh, associated with repeated traumatic brain injuries. It continues to be a major issue. Let's discuss now with my guest, Tim Fleiser. Tim is the executive director of the Concussion Legacy Foundation of Canada. And Tim is a former player in the CFL. He played 10 seasons in the CFL as a defensive lineman, played for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, Montreal, Edmonton, Saskatchewan. He won four Grey Cups. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Tim, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, Tim, let's talk uh, briefly about your career in the CFL, and congratulations on all your success there. Did, did, you, suffer, uh, did you suffer many injuries during your career yourself, including uh, concussions? Um, I had one major concussion my, my rookie year, um, but uh, fortunately, uh, so, I mean, you play 10 years of pro football, you're going to suffer lots of injuries. Um, and I, I did. I had a shoulder reconstruction. Uh, you know, my, my bicep on my right side hangs half off. Uh, but fortunately, not too many brain injuries. And uh, fortunate today that I've been totally asymptomatic so far. I'm really glad to hear that, Tim. And now you're actively involved in this cause around concussion awareness. What, what is your goal there? And, and, and what are you working toward there at the Concussion Legacy Foundation? Well, I love sports. Um, had yeah. a Tremendous experience with sports and not just in football, uh, you know, was a hockey player, rugby player, soccer player, baseball. Um, think sports is fantastic and, uh, you know, want to see uh, sports continue, want to see uh, children enrolled in sports and have them um, experience all the great personal development that can come along with, with participating in sports, uh, never mind the health benefits. But one of the things that we need to do is we need to change how we practice and play these sports, particularly with young children. And one of the things that we need to address is uh, we need to make sure that we're not exposing children to uh, both concussive and subconcussive blows, particularly under the age of 14 years old. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. And uh, I love sports too. I mean, I'm a big I'm a big football fan. I love watching the NFL every every weekend. I enjoy the CFL. But, man, when, when I see some of the collisions on the field, especially kind of head-to-head hits, you know, like guys just flying in almost like head-first like a missile, man, it looks, it looks really dangerous. Like, have they tried – I know the, the NFL has tried to change the rules on this, right, to make it safer on the field. Has the CFL done that too? Um, so, so I think actually the, the biggest and most positive change both on the NFL side and on the CFL side actually has not been with what the fans see on the field on game day. It's actually mm-hmm. been in practice. Okay. And one of the things that we saw, and, and you know, let, let's start from the beginning where uh, the risk is not concussions. The, the, the risk for chronic traumatic encephalopathy is actually the total number of subconcussive blow that an athlete receives during the course of their career. Right. And when we looked at the data, we saw that about 75 to 80% of these impacts were actually happening in practice. And what happened a few years back is when they uh, redid the collective bargaining agreement in the NFL is they uh, put uh, uh, very reduced limits on the amount of contact that was happening in practice. And that was a very, from our perspective, very, very positive development. And the CFL followed suit a couple of years later. So uh, now as compared to, you know, when I played, where we did during training camp, for instance, we did double-day practices, and they were always in pads, and we were smashing into each other, you know, multiple times a practice. Um, you know, the, the sport has figured out uh, that we don't need to have that much contact in practice to prepare. And uh, so, you know, have virtually eliminated uh, uh, contact during training camp and have eliminated it in practices during the season. And so, you know, that's uh, reduced the risk substantially for the current players. But listen, particularly the pro level, um, you're not going to eliminate the risk. And there, you know, it's, it's what the sport as it is now, there's going to be brain injuries. It's what we need to figure out is, is what is an acceptable level of risk and what's acceptable injury outcomes that, uh, that we can all live with. 
Right, speaking of Tim Fleiser, he's the executive director of the Concussion Legacy Foundation of Canada. Now, Tim is a former CFL football player, 10, 10 seasons in the CFL. He won four Grey Cups with uh, four different teams. Um, that's really interesting, Tim. You're describing how they've changed the, the practice regimen, and, and that's something maybe fans might not be aware of because mo- what we see is the game every on Sundays, and you know we see the a guy getting a concussion on on the field. But I, I take your point there, man. Like you, might, you must get pretty beat up in practice through the course of many, many seasons, right? Well, we certainly used to. Luca said that's one of the one of the big things that's changed. The, the yeah. other, which you referenced, is the culture around the game. Right. And I was somebody who grew up, you know, watching NFL's greatest hits, and and I had all the Don Cherry, Rock and Sockham hockey videos, and the fights and all that stuff. And I, and, and listen, I love that. I mean, that was my style of play when I played. I was a very physical player, and you know, when we've come to understand what the consequences of, of those type of hits and those types of injuries are, it, it really it takes the pleasure out of watching it. And I still like yeah. to see physical play. I still like to see, you know, strong tackles. But, you know, I was talking the other day with a CFL head coach, and he was talking about how different the culture is, you know, in the special teams film room. And it used to be back in the day when you saw a guy get blindsided, everybody would cheer. And now the reaction <laughs> is everybody gasps. So I do feel wow. like we're doing a good job at changing the culture, you know, at the elite level. Um, but to me, I'm, I'm much more concerned about what we're doing with our children. And, uh, um, you know, we are advocates of uh, not having children uh, receive any sort of subconcussive impact, whether that's headers in soccer, whether that's body checking in hockey or tackling in football in advance of the age of 14. And the reason is the brain is still developing. Uh, the children's necks are not strong enough to sustain those blows, and basically their brains are more vulnerable. And so what we've seen with children who start playing football before the age of 12 is they have three times the risk for clinically elevated uh, depression scores, um, as well as you know some of this other nasty neurodegenerative disease that, uh, that we've seen uh, you know, being studied with, uh, with our work in Boston, um, uh, with Boston University. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things that uh, policymakers really now need to address. Okay, that's really interesting. Let me let me go over a couple of those points in detail with you, Tim, especially some of the, the rules you're advocating for. So so no headers in soccer, did you say before age 14? Yeah, it, it's, it's 12 seems to be a bit of a magic number. But I think when, you know, when you're coming to kids' brains and, and you know, I'm a father, I've, I've got boys five, three, and a half, on the way. And unsurprisingly, they just kind of came out of the wound contact sports athletes. Um, you know, they're just, they're physical kids, high energy. And I want them to have the opportunity to participate in all these sports. But uh, as a father for their own development and their long-term health and their long-term performance, um, I don't want them subjected to any sort of subconcussive uh, uh, impacts until they turn 14. Right, right. And, and have any soccer associations in Canada adopted that? They have not. So they banned heading uh, south of the border um, in 2015. And uh, for whatever reason, we policymakers have not sought fit to follow suit here in Canada. As, as, and that's with regard to headers in soccer. That's that, right. And again, yeah. you know, hmm. similar to football, the majority of those headers happen in practice. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, this is a disease that can be, or a risk factor for a disease that can be easily avoided. Um, to me, I just don't see a heck of a lot of upside uh, to having children heading the ball and practicing the ball. To me, that's a skill that can be learned uh, later in their careers. That's interesting. And what about body checking in hockey? 
So, so Honky County actually did raise the, uh, the body checking age a couple of years ago. I think we've done a, a decent job in, in Canada and in, within the hockey community of addressing that. Um, but there's, there still is some places, particularly at the elite level, where there still is contact um, for children under the age of 14. And, um, you know, my, my, in my opinion, um, it should be something that we do away with. And I actually think, you know, in retrospect, and listen, again, you're talking to somebody that loved the contact aspect of sports and the physical aspect of sports. I actually think eliminating contact from a performance standpoint is helpful, um, not just for health, but actually for performance, because it allows children to work on their skills uh, rather than just focusing on the on the hitting aspect of the game. All right. Well, it's such a beautiful time of year right now. The weather outside, it's getting a little crisp and cool. The leaves are falling down. I love the autumn weather in this time of year for sure. But it's also a time of year when some creepy crawlies will try to crawl into your home. You can't blame them. It's getting cold outside. They want to warm up. Let's discuss now how to pest-proof your home. And we've got the great, the best guy to talk about it, Mike Laundry. He's our resident pest expert. He's the owner of Westside Pest Control. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. So this must be a busy time of year for you. Now, is, is this makes sense logically that it's getting cold outside, so the rats want to come inside? Is that right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Through the, through the late summer and early fall, there's been an abundance of, of fruit turning into rotten fruit falling off of trees and, and people's yards. And they've been, they've been hanging out outside just like us. We've been on patios for the last few months and now we're venturing indoors and the rodents are no different. Okay. So they're looking to get inside and you get a lot of calls at this time of year from people who've seen like they've seen a rat in the house or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, the more common thing that we we tend to tend to hear when people phone us at this time of year is is I'm I'm hearing something. They don't always necessarily see it, but they often they often hear it first. Something scratching around in the in the soffit, in the attic, in the walls, um, and and occasionally they'll see evidence left behind from them too. Okay, well, you're certainly the guy to call if you hear that or you see something like that. What about some some preventative measures, though? Is there is there any ways you can sort of pest-proof your home to stop them from getting in in the first place? Oh, there's tons of ways. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, doing a doing a thorough inspection around the outside of the house is is always one of the first one of the first steps when it when it comes to mice. Um, they don't usually climb that much, so focusing. Focusing around the foundation is always the best thing. Um, do it really slowly because mice can can sneak through a hole smaller than uh, smaller than your baby finger. So um, you know, going thoroughly uh, around the outside of the house, look between the siding and the foundation. Look around around doorways, anywhere where there's ingress into the house. So often, if there's a gas line or plumbing or or anything that you, you know stops a straight line on the side of the house those are places to to check and uh again it might not look like much but you're better off sealing it up if uh if anything that you think might be a way they could get in okay so if if they do get in if, if all that fails and you do get some rats or mice in the house i mean rats are worse i imagine right 
Well, to be honest, I much prefer rats in a house over over mice. Most oh, people really? are surprised to hear that, but uh, it's a bigger creature. Bigger creature means it's going to require a bigger point of of ingress to get into the house. The other the other thing that makes mice so much more challenging than rats is for mice. Your home, your apartment, your townhouse, it's an all-inclusive resort. They have no reason to leave and go anywhere else. There's actually enough moisture in a grain of cereal to keep a mouse hydrated as well as fed. (laughs) Whereas with rats, the structure that they're residing in is usually just a place of harborage. Even in the winter, they're still venturing out in the cold and rain to find sustenance, to get water, and then scoot back in again and sleep during the day. Okay, that's very interesting, Mike. What about, uh, are most of the places you, you get called out to, are they usually like a detached home or like a, a co- or a, like a, a ground-level townhouse or something? Or can some of these uh, mice or rats get into, get into like a condo? They'll get into everything, absolutely. Yeah. Multi-residence structures are, are, not, uh, are not safe from, from rodent ingress, especially when it, when it comes to mice, because there's, infrastructure inside of inside of a condo that might go up 25 stories and the mice will have an easy time following pipes and electrical from unit to unit to unit so um yeah if you're in an apartment you're you're in a condo um there are measures that you can take uh it's always best to address the building as a whole but if that can't be done there's measures that you can take individually to uh to help keep them out of your unit specifically Okay, speaking of Mike Laundry, he's the owner of Westside Pest Control. What about other uh, pests at this time of year, Mike? Like, uh, do you get any calls around maybe raccoons kind of trying to move in? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Although most of our raccoon calls are usually in the spring, just oh. at, about the time when they are they're starting to they're they're starting to to nest. So when when the family is about to arrive, that's when the raccoons usually move in. So normally February, March is when we get most of our calls for raccoons, but it's a year-round occurrence and raccoons will have multiple den sites. So, you know, if one home homeowner kicks them out of one attic, then uh, if it's November, October, they're going to find another one to take over instead. Okay, Mike, what about uh, your run-of-the-mill, your more routine kind of insectoid uh, infestations, you know, whether it's ants or silverfish or any other kind of bugs? Uh, does that slow down a bit in the fall and winter, or is that year-round for you? It's, it, it definitely slows down, but some of the yeah. indoor insects like feral ants and silverfish um, are, uh, are, are an insect that people battle year-round, and, it's, and, it's call, and they're calls that we get. Um, and and go out and and assist people with but uh wasps carpenter ants pavement ants digging up uh sand on on the patio they for the most part go dormant from october until april the show as we continue talking pest control with my guest mike laundry west side pest control phone lines are open 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell lonnie in surrey hi I'm so glad you have uh, Mike on. You're talking to a full-on arachnophobe here. What can I do about spiders getting into my house at this time of year? Is there anything, any sprays, any treatments? Mike. Sure. Um, So, I mean, one of the quickest and easiest things that I suggest people do, and this is a great... uh, 
It's a great way to catch all kinds of insects, and it's a great tool without using any insecticides, are glue boards. Uh, lots of people are opposed to them for the capture of, of rodents for their cool treatment, but uh, glue boards are an awesome tool uh, for catching insects. You can get them from most hardware stores. They don't cost more than a few bucks, and, um, and just place them along the Place them along the baseboards, underneath furniture. Um, you know, definitely focus on areas where you're seeing lots of the spiders. It's not going to be a be-all and end-all treatment, but it's a great first step without using any chemicals. Okay, that's a really great great tip. Uh, I hope you try that one, Lonnie. Thank you for the call. Eric in Kelowna, hi. Hi there. Hi. Yeah, so I have, uh, I have a rodent that's living in either my walls or my floor. And like I can literally hear the thing running around at night when I'm like trying to sleep, and uh, and I've tried to you know trap it, uh, try glue traps, um, you know, sort of poison uh, because I do also have pets. Uh, I was looking for some suggestions. Are you sure it's just one? No, not necessarily. No. Yeah, uh, yeah, Mike, what do you think? It's often not just one. It's usually yeah. not just one. I we we hear it all the time. You go to someone's house and they say, "Yeah, I've 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 had this rat." for two years now and uh it's yeah at that point you're dealing with uh you're dealing with an extended family um always try to focus on the exterior of the of the house uh most people get sort of caught up focusing on where they're hearing the activity but again if if you're hearing the noise and it's that loud i'm almost certain it's not mice it's likely rats and they're going to be coming and going from the from the house so try to try to focus on where you hear the noise first. That'll probably lead you to the exterior part of the house where they're where they're coming and going from. If you have one, you may need to get out a ladder, but I would start at the foundation and, and work your way up. If you can figure out where they're coming and, and going from, um, you can go online and purchase a one-way door. This is exactly what wow. we use to get rodents out. Uh, rather than poisoning them and them dying in the walls and stinking up the house, install a one-way door over that access point so the rat can get out and can't get back in again. And hopefully they go and live with your neighbors instead of in your house. <laughs> okay. Okay, Eric, good luck with that one. Let's go to James in White Rock. Hi, James. Oh, let's go to Ricky in Kamloops. Hey, Ricky. Well, it's not Ricky. It's Mickey, like the mouse. Oh, Mickey. oh sorry, Mickey. Go ahead. No problem. Uh, listen, I sold trailers for years, and uh, we I went and picked a trailer up from a farmer that had it parked in his uh, hay barn, which all these trailers that I've taken over the years always had mouse droppings in it. This thing had nothing, and it was parked in, the, in a resort for mice. So what happened was I talked to his wife, and there were, she had cotton balls that she had dipped in and uh, liquid peppermint she got from the health store and all her cupboards up and down and in the corners and under her bed and that i'm telling you we cleaned that place because we have to resell it it was not one mouse dropping in there and she said that was the secret really liquid peppermint wow mike what do you think of that it's it's a great it's a great suggestion. There's lots of things that that work. Um, it's the same way that ultrasonic devices can be a great tool. And uh, um, any sensory thing that whether it's something that they're smelling or hearing is going to help deter rodents. Once they've established themselves, 
I wouldn't run out and buy peppermint oil once you have mice. When you have mice, you need to trap them. You need to get them out. You need to you need to close up access points and keep them out. But as yeah. preventatives, I I think home remedies like peppermint are are awesome. I I honestly can't speak to it from experience, but I have seen positive results from using um, from using the uh, the audio devices. Uh, it literally just sends out a, a loud signal that we can't hear, but the mice can as a great right. preventative for boats, garages, sheds, cabins, etc. Oh, really? Okay, where can you get those? Anywhere? Um, just about anywhere. Yeah, if you yeah. if you wow. Google ultrasonic device, you can you can buy them in hardware stores or get them on Amazon or just about anywhere else. The one suggestion I would have is don't spend less than twenty five bucks if someone tries to sell you one for nine dollars spend the extra 15 bucks and you, the results okay. will be a lot better okay 604-280-9898 mike laundry west side pest control is my guest star 9898 on your cell lynn in port moody hi lynn hi um we've got a, a log cabin down in washington that we're hoping to get to as soon as the border opens and we've had a friend checking on it and he tells us that it's loaded with spiders and i'm wondering what you think the best way to get rid of them. Okay, well, we had an earlier spider call, um, and Mike, you mentioned the uh, the glue boards. Any other yeah. methods? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things, and this is one of the things that, that, that we do, and it might seem super obvious, but is often forgotten to do, is is sweep the spider webs and, yeah. and sweep them, just sweep them out of the way. Uh, get everything out of there, because those those spiders are going are gonna to lay eggs, and if you can get everything out of there and then install some some glue boards and and if at that point it's still not working you could look at using insecticides as well it's it's always sort of a multi-pronged approach for any pest but um, i would start by knocking down the webs going in there installing some some glue boards and assessing it and if there's still an infestation then then any over-the-counter insecticide in a in a can will help but i would try those chemical free options first and see how your results are okay lynn good luck with that keep calling star 9898 on your cell gene in vancouver hi hi mike hi too much uh i wanted to ask uh, if he could help solve a mystery that we're having uh, we have a big wide front porch up 14 stairs or so to get there and the first time we noticed it, we noticed this little pool of something that dried and trickled along uh, the porch. And this morning I go out there and there's three of these little pools that have dried. Two, two are dry and one is fresh. It looks like urine. So what kind of a creature will be coming up a bunch of stairs like that <clears throat> to pee on my porch? Ooh. Now, depending on the size of the pool, it's my, my guess is it's probably rats. It could also be r- raccoons, although... Both of those creatures usually leave um, usually leave additional evidence to just uh, other than just liquid, but that's probably what you're dealing with is one of those one of those two creatures. Um, if it's just been the past few days, what I would do is um, I would I would keep cleaning it. Uh, make sure you're using something like a, a mixture of, of of bleach and water or any household cleaner because. 
any pest is going to get familiar. And even if it's an, even if it's a different rat, if a different rat shows up on your doorstep and they can smell where all these spots of urine have been left, then they're going to say, Hey, this is a safe place where nobody bugs a rat if they come and hang out. So (laughs) keep cleaning it up and they're going to come along and think, Oh, maybe this is not a safe place to be. And the rat that's been coming, um, their, their, their sensory is so, is so much a part of all of the habits that they get into. So right. if that okay. rat thinks they're coming back to the same spot, they are going to go somewhere else if you're cleaning it up. Mike, we could do a whole show with you because we have way more calls. Uh, what's your website? People want to check it out. Westsidepest.com. Thanks a lot for coming on, Mike. Thank you.